Please be seated. The decades of the 1960s and 1970s were times of upheaval and great change in America. Institutions that had been the bedrock of our society were being called into question and actively rejected even by many. Some of the changes that took place in those years were good and necessary, of course, such as the breaking down of the barriers of racial discrimination. Other changes seemed more intent upon tearing down authority and breaking moral boundaries, and that pattern continues in much the same way yet today. Growing up in those years was an experience that made me shake my head quite a bit. Having been raised in a patriotic and Christian home, I just could not understand how anyone living in America could be so antagonistic toward our government, toward our culture, toward our economic system, or the values that had shaped our society. And when I would voice my young and only partially informed opinion about how crazy it seemed, my parents would patiently wait for me to ramble on for a while. I knew that they shared many of the same thoughts and concerns, and of course, they had very much shaped my attitudes. It's just that they did a much better job than I did of applying the Eighth Commandment. Just remember, they would say, even the worst person can, eat, can always serve as a bad example. In the text for today, St. Paul calls many examples to the attention of the church at Corinth. The Corinthian church was struggling in its own day to remain faithful to the gospel of Christ which Paul and others had preached to them. They were not only in danger of being swallowed up in the temptations of the pagan world around them, they were also becoming fragmented and split up into factions by internal divisions and disagreements. This battle on two fronts, both against the outside world and against one another, had the potential of corrupting or perhaps even destroying this congregation. It was pulling them in directions that would keep them from living and growing according to God's will and God's Word. When people are struggling in their lives of faith like the Corinthians were, and when they're facing temptations and conflicts, sometimes the most effective means for them to understand God's judgment on the one hand and God's grace on the other is to learn by example. Paul's first set of examples are those which reminded the Corinthians of God's good and gracious care toward the people of Israel as they departed from Egypt. Paul points first to the unity in which all of the Israelites experienced God's gifts. Together, all of them had been guided by the cloud. All of them were saved from the pursuing Egyptians by passing through the sea. All of them were provided manna and quail and water to nourish and to sustain them in the harsh desert environment. The same gifts given for all. In being baptized into Moses in those days, the Israelites were, be, were to be united as one people under a common leadership with a single purpose. Paul's use of all these examples should have struck a note with the Corinthian congregation and with us as well. Each of us has experienced similar examples of God's grace in our own lives. In a sense, all Christians are led and guided to faith through a cloud. 
not a physical cloud like the Israelites followed in the desert, but that great cloud of witnesses that are written about in the book of Hebrews. That cloud does not consist of vapor and mist that cannot be grasped and held. No, this cloud of witnesses are those many believers throughout the ages who heard and accepted and passed along the Word of God with a solid and reliable testimony for those of us who would follow. Now the Corinthians knew that they had not been baptized into Moses. He was, after all, a mere man despite his great leadership and his faithfulness. No, Moses' task was to lead the Israelites into a place of worldly safety and comfort and plenty. Instead, like you, the Corinthians had been baptized into Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And therefore, you have the promise of eternal safety, eternal comfort, and eternal plenty in faith by His death and by His resurrection. Paul had reminded the Corinthians a bit earlier in this letter that despite whatever wickedness they had done prior into their lives, and at that time they had become washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And so it is for you as well. Paul's further example of God's gracious care to the Israelites was that of the spiritual food and drink flowing from the rock of Christ. The implications of this would not have escaped the Corinthians' understanding. Although it had not yet been mentioned in the letter by Paul at this point, he had been informed that the Lord's Supper was being abused at Corinth. To some, the meal had become simply a time to eat and to drink without any reverence for the body and blood of Christ. They were not sharing the meal in proper fellowship with one another. They were not participating in it with an understanding of it being a holy sacrament, conducted in the presence of God and given by God for the forgiveness of sins for salvation, and for the strengthening of souls. How are you viewing it? How are you receiving it? Paul's second set of examples serve as a warning against rejecting the Word of God and being tempted to direct our cravings and our desires toward improper things. He calls upon the Corinthians to reject the sinful examples which caused the Israelites to not only lose many of the benefits they enjoyed while following God faithfully, but to actually perish. The Israelites had taken on false gods, both in forming the golden calf and also in pursuing the gods of other nations that they encountered. In righteous jealousy over the devotion that was rightly His and that He alone deserved, the true God allowed many of them to die in that desert. They had been sexually immoral with a pagan people and thousands of them succumbed to disease. They grumbled about their situation and thousands more fell from serpent bites. They rebelled against God and rebelled against their leaders and the earth swallowed up many and far more of them died in the subsequent plague. Each of these evil desires was also being carried out in its own way by members of the church in Corinth. And their desires and and their actions that we still know and we also too often follow in our own day and age. Now you might not bow to actual graven images in the pagan temples or share in food that was sacrificed to idols, but you still create your own false gods. You sometimes put your dependence and your loyalty and your devotion toward your job or toward your relationships, toward your possessions or your forms of entertainment, or toward your finances. Like the Israelites and like the Corinthians, you sometimes trust in your own knowledge and your own judgment 
rather than in God's love shown to you in Christ. Repent. Be forgiven. Be renewed. Like the Israelites, the Corinthians were divided and grumbling. They were rebellious against God and against their leaders. Complaints were being voiced about Paul and about his colleagues, calling their legitimacy and their authority into question. Feelings of anger and dissatisfaction, like those that had earlier been targeted at Moses and at Aaron, were now being directed toward Paul. Disputes were being carried to the point of actual lawsuits in the public courts, one church member against another. Groups within the congregation were aligning themselves with various leaders and with various doctrines, not remaining united in one truth under Jesus Christ. When you find yourself in the trap of criticizing others, particularly those within the church, remember the example of what Israel suffered for its grumbling, as well as those admonitions given by Paul to that church at Corinth. Paul's third set of examples for the Corinthians' guidance and ours centers on how the Lord provides grace to us for the Christians who face temptation. Note that Paul first warns us that we must always face temptation with humility and not with self-assurance. For he writes, Let him who thinks he stands be careful that he does not fall. It's impossible to resist temptation on your own. Inheriting your vile and your corrupt nature from the sinners who begat and who bore you, you cannot avoid that plunge into sin over and over again. But you do have hope against temptation. Paul tells us three key things that exemplify God's love and God's faithfulness in keeping you from a constant downward spiral of temptation and sin. First, he indicates that the temptations you face are those which all have faced throughout history. There really are no new temptations, just new ways for the same old temptations to come to you. The Ten Commandments anticipate and they also address all the sins that you could possibly imagine. In fact, the first commandment alone is well sufficient to describe how all the others arise. Having these commandments written in your heart and always at your disposal, at your command if you will, helps you to recognize the temptations that come your way and to see that they are just another twist on the same old theme from your same old adversary, Satan. Second, God's faithfulness will not allow any temptation to become greater than you can bear. How can that be, you ask? I'm tempted all the time, and all too often I give in to it and commit the sin. It sure seems like I can't resist it. The blunt truth is there's a big difference between can't and won't. You can, with God's help, resist any temptation if you let Him. It's just that some sins are so enjoyable in the short term, you give in. You do not allow your new man, given to you in Christ, to wrestle your old Adam to the ground. To win that battle, you need the added power of the Holy Spirit as it came to you in baptism and as it continues to come to you in word and sacrament. Call upon that power by praying to your Father in heaven when you need it and He will hear you. But will you hear Him back? Paul's third example of God's grace in the face of temptation is that He will always provide you an escape route. Unfortunately, like a stubborn driver who refuses to stop for directions, 
you'll sometimes miss this escape or you'll drive right past it with your arrogant nose in the air, seeking your own solution. If you cannot stand up to temptation and you don't want to fall, don't stand and fight on your own. Run from it as fast as you can, praying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Speaking of examples, you always have the opportunity when confronted by the temptation to sin to follow the lead of your Savior. Now, I'm not talking here about some cheap, fix-it-of-yourself-what-would-Jesus-do approach to resisting temptation. It must never be that you rest on your own subjective sense of how Christ might view right and wrong or on your own reasoned decisions. No, when Christ was confronted by temptation, even by the person of Satan himself, Jesus used the ultimate weapon against the tempter's deceit. He used the truth of the Word of God, and He properly applied it to the devil's lies and the devil's misquotations. As Paul wrote, the people of Israel had been delivered twice in short order from death. Once in the blood of the unblemished lamb in the Passover, and again in the passage through the Red Sea as they made their escape. They were sustained with holy food and drink while they wandered in a barren world and awaited their arrival in a wondrous new home. It would be difficult to find another section of Scripture that is so rich in all of the images that look ahead to the sacrificial substitutionary death of Christ and to the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These events all point to our delivery from death by the power of God. Israel had been chosen by God especially for His purposes. They were not only chosen to be His favored people and to receive His blessings, they were also chosen to pass along to all other peoples and nations the greatest blessing of all, the salvation from sins and death by Jesus Christ, a man to be born of their bloodline. Another key aspect of Israel's status as the chosen people is often overlooked or forgotten, however. They were also expected to serve as an example to other nations. Israel was to both communicate and to demonstrate God's nature and His ways and His blessings to all others as they had been taught. As a child of the new Israel, you and the Church of Christ are to do likewise. From your blessed status as His chosen ones, His elect, you are to share His gospel with those who have not yet heard it. You have experienced the great Passover as the Lamb is bloodied to mark you as one to be protected from the wrath of God. You've been through the drowning of the evil pursuer, crossing over from slavery to freedom on your journey toward your promised home. You too share in the divinely provided food and drink which sustains you as you travel in the wilderness of this life. Israel had plenty of tangible, obvious signs of God's power, and yet they still turned away from the Lord. Their example to us is therefore flawed in many ways. Even so, these examples are very useful to us in pointing us to dependence upon God in Christ alone. As you continue your 40-day Lenten journey, may you keep your focus not on what you've left behind in your spiritual Egypt, not on idolatry and immorality which the world entices you with, nor on what comforts or luxuries you think you may be lacking. Instead, follow the cloud that leads us all and drink from the rock that accompanies us, the crucified and the risen Jesus. He is your only source and hope for protection, for forgiveness, for salvation, 
and for life eternal. In His holy name, Amen.